0: Welcome to this conversation. I'm your host, Teresa Keller. For today's program, we are presenting an edited version of one of Emory & Henry's events in honor of Black History Month. The speaker is Dr. William Turner, author of Harlan Renaissance, Stories of Black Lives in Appalachia. You'll notice that it's not the Harlem Renaissance that you've likely heard of in New York, This book refers to Dr. Turner's experience growing up in Harlan, Kentucky, and the valuable lessons he learned growing up there. The program was presented by Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and his office, Dr. John Holloway. We now join the program as Dr. Turner is talking about why he wrote the book. Here's Dr. Turner.
1: And the fact of the matter is, I didn't want it to be ever said that whatever happened to the people of Harlan County? because the black people of Harlan County and McDowell County in West Virginia and Wise County in Coburn where my daddy was born in 1917 and Lee County where my great-grandmother was born in 1856 and it's all disappeared and it's disappeared fast so I didn't want anybody to ever say Would I, were there ever any black people in Harlan County and that's what I tried to tell also too there's a lot in my book about uh, the stories of people who made it out of the, 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 the hollow, You know, John, people talk about the hood. but well, we go from the hollow to the hood. And so where the hoods are in eastern Kentucky, these little coal towns, uh, there's some people that did very well, and I want to write about them. And also, too, we have this wonderful history. And if you don't demonstrate to the world that you have this history, the world will say you are not even worthy of enjoying the fruits of democracy because you can't tell us about your grandma. So that's why I wrote it. The title of the book which is just a play on the Harlem Renaissance. Yes. Or... Yeah. Thanks for that question, uh, Dr. Holloway. Uh, Dr. Holloway, you grew up in Harlem, yes, New York right. City, <laughs> 125th Street and Lenox Avenue. All right. Amsterdam. So, in between 1900 and 1920, millions of African Americans, as you know, came up with what we call the Atlantic Coast corridor from Florida and Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia, and it was the first great migration after the Civil War, and they went into Washington, to Baltimore, to Philadelphia, and Grand Central Station, New York City. Marcus Garvey, the Harlem Renaissance, Billie Holiday, Duke Ellington, the very mixture of black life and culture that the world had never seen, and they were all congregated in Harlem. Uh, That was a segregated space, ground zero uh, for, for black America. At the same time, between 1900 and 1920, thousands and thousands of black people were moving from central Alabama in a migration route, being recruited specifically by United States Steel My father worked for the United States Steel Coal and Coke Company for 48 years. U.S. Steel, as you may know, between 1900 and 1920, was the equivalent of Amazon. It was the biggest, most highly capitalized company in the United States. World War I was built on steel. And U.S. Steel, if you've ever been to Birmingham, Birmingham used to be called what? Steel City. Uh, uh, There was coal mining around Tuscaloosa around Birmingham, Inslee, all of these spaces in central Alabama, uh, the Black Belt, and those same people were, and by the way, United States still also at that time operated the most malicious employment labor thing, is that the state of Alabama, between the end of the Civil War and 1900, uh, they would arrest black people for absolutely nothing, no real offense, loitering, for example, They would put them in prison, in Alabama's prisons. United States Steel would come along and lease them as convicts, and they would work in the mine in Jasper, Alabama for free for five years. And many of those men took off and came to Harlan County in the 1920s. So uh, US Steel was a a huge company. And so I always thought of Harlan. if you look at the population density, there were, the three ta- two towns in Central West Virginia that I named there starting off is Gary, West Virginia. Gary, West Virginia is right near Welch, West Virginia. It is also very close to Keystone, West Virginia in what they call the Pocahontas coalfields. It was the richest coal fields in America at that time. Okay? And so thousand and thousand Blacks went there. Why was it called Gary? Because the, the, the chief attorney for United States Steel was a man named Gary, G-A-R-Y was his last name. Not only that, United States Steel, which was a vertically integrated company, had smelting plants in Gary, Indiana. <laughs> Same Gary, United States Steel. My hometown, people say, your hometown is L-Y-N-C-H? Are you kidding me? I grew up in a town called Mitch, Kentucky. Lynch. That'll be the first thing people asked. I said, no, 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 no. It wasn't for that reason that they named it Lynch. The president of United States Steel was named John Lynch. So throughout eastern Kentucky, you know. So when we got to Harlan, I always called it the blackest town for mountains around. Because where I grew up in Harlan, Kentucky, and Lynch, Kentucky, there were thirteen thousand people when I was born there in nineteen forty-six and a third of them were black. So when you consider 4,000 black people in a little bitty space. And if, you know, we had juke joints, y'all know juke joints? <laughs> like they have in Harlem, little bars and cabarets. And we had a Negro baseball league team. Uh, we had semi-pro basketball league teams. Uh, when I first went to the University of Kentucky, it was the first time I called my mother immediately after arriving on that campus. And I called mom, I said, Mom, this is unbelievable. I've never seen this many white people in my life. I mean, it was like taking a kid out of Johannesburg to London. You know, I had, I had seen, uh, for example, we were also, multi- I said there were 38 different nationalities in Lynch, Kentucky in 1940. 38 different nationalities. People named Huesca, people named Yabotsky, people named, I grew up with a boy named Marcus Camacho. I did not have to wait till I went to college at 20 to meet somebody whose dad was born in Mexico. You know, uh, uh, we played with the kids kids named Vicini. There were hundreds of Italian families and they had all come over to Ellis Island, just like our grandparents had come out of Alabama, their grandparents came out of Czechoslovakia. Uh, uh, In 1966, people began to use the word, a, a derisive word toward whites called a honky. Y'all remember that word? The hunkies. Well, in our hometown, we would go every day to a little place called the hunky stand because it was run by this Hungarian man. And everybody called it the hunky stand like it was McDonald's. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, it was called, we didn't think of the word hunky as you know some dirty word. So yeah, uh, it was it, I tried my best to do a play on words between the Harlan Renaissance in your New York. New York and the Harlan where we grew up, uh, Butcher Hollow, uh, it was just to say, black people were in the same numbers there proportionally as blacks were in the, that, you know, centering place called New York City.
0: Just a reminder that you're listening to this conversation and you're hearing excerpts of a presentation made at Emory & Henry during Black History Month. Dr. William Turner is talking about his book, Harlan Renaissance, stories of black lives in Appalachia. And now he addresses the framework of his book.
1: And the essence of my framework is to say, uh, the integration of the colored schools in the South decimated black communities. When the people who ran the school boards of the South in the fifties decided, okay, we're gonna integrate. Now the Supreme Court is ruled in Brown versus Board and we're gonna close down the colored school. And that's what they did. They did it in Kingsport. They did it in Knoxville, they did it in the they did it all over the South. And one of the first things they did is they got rid of all the black teachers. That was the first move they made. You couldn't have three chemistry teachers, so they kept the whites. And the black people went to Columbus. This man, John B. Stevenson, I don't know if anybody in the room knows John B. Stevenson, but John Stevenson was my undergraduate advisor in 1965 and 66 and 67 at the University of Kentucky. Uh, John studied at William and Mary. He held a doctorate from Carolina. And uh, when he kind of ushered me off to Notre Dame to go to graduate school, he said, Billy, you always called me Billy, which I hated because nobody called me Billy with my grandmother. But he said, Billy, when you get to graduate school, I think you ought to dedicate your life to the study of Black people in Appalachia because you're from Parlin County. And that's very unusual. And I said, thank you, but no thank you. Because when I was uh, coming along at 20 years old, uh, there was a, 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 a depiction of white people in the mountains of the South about which I wanted to have nothing to do because it paralleled Black people uh, that we knew as, say, Sambo. And white people had somebody they called Jethro, you know, Jethro and Ellie and then there was Sambo and Willie May. <laughs> and Jethro and Willie May were from a dysfunctional Southern cracker culture. Excuse my language, but I didn't make that word up. They were banjo playing, coal mining, family from scotch-Irish hillbillies who toted guns. And they were incestuous and mean and evil and angry and semi-literate, toothless people. And they were isolated along Butcher Hollow and Dollywood and they carried rebel flags and they they drank moonshine and they were snake handling Christian fundamentalist racists. And first and foremost, it didn't like strangers, even if they were white. That was the way they talked about the people of Emirates, Kentucky. And I said, and you want me to study the black approval of that? No, thank you. But I came back to it. Uh, I would just say, Appalachian needs more teachers like John Peterson. Because when John ran into me as a young African-American boy of 20 years old in 1966 or so, uh, he treated me in such a way that he encouraged me. Uh, a lot of times I have found over the years that many white teachers at colleges would patronize Black students. John didn't patronize me. John said, Bill, you do better than that. Uh, dad worked uh, in the coal mines. Uh, he went into coal mine when he was 13 in 1930. Uh, and dad lived along a place called Tom's Creek in Wise County in Coburn, Virginia, which is a crow fly is an hour from here. Daddy's paycheck, December 31st, 1946, I was six months old. My dad bought home $47.50 after working 84 hours. I know I'm at a Christian school, but I paid that much for a bottle of Basil Hayden liquor the every night. <laughs> <laughs> Mama had five children in less than eight years. <laughs> there are a lot of big families like that in Everson. We're not talking about birth control here. We're talking about people. Who had children? That's what poor people didn't do. But uh, we were stair step, and then Mama had three more children. I have three younger brothers, and then uh, Mama's best friend died of breast cancer, and she brought in their two children. When I look around this room, I grew up in a two-room, two-bedroom house, and I was so glad to see somebody graduate high school because that freed up some space. Project 1619 that came out of the New York Times a few years ago. Basic concepts, white privilege, systemic inequality, and inherent bias. And it said at the center of everything in America is race, is slavery. If you don't start there, you're not starting in the right place. Where did that take us to? It took us to a place now during our great whitewash of American history. There are many people who are saying American history should be taught from the perspective that white people should not feel guilty because of their advantages. It's as simple as that. That people are now saying, you're making our poor young white girls feel big. I live in Texas. We have a governor there. His name is Greg Abbott. Greg Abbott and the lieutenant governor's name, Patton, I think, they have come up with a series of legislative steps to limit how race and racism can be taught. My daughter has a graduate degree from Temple in history, and she teaches in Houston, Texas, in a high school. And do you know, they're literally telling her, you can't teach that. Texas a few months ago came up with a law that said, if you have an abortion in Texas, uh, we can put the person in prison who makes a call for you to find some help. So imagine in these states where they have banned the teaching of any concepts related to the curriculum that includes the idea that slavery and what is now the United States marks the true founding of the nation. Governor DeSantis in Florida has sought to ban all, ban material. Just this week in Tennessee, they banned they banned the book called M A U S, is it Mouse? Is that what you pronounce that? The Holocaust in Poland, and they're saying we don't want to hear that anymore. Stop teaching that. And we are living in a world of conceptual distortion where as George Orwell argued years ago in, was it 1984 or Brave New World, one or the other, up will be down, down will be up, right will be wrong, wrong will be right. So we need to talk about Black history as American history. This is not African American History Month, it's American history. It's deeply American history. And we need to talk about it, not just in this month, but we ought to talk about it in world history. Uh, and because if Blacks are left out, nobody's going to get it right. So I'm talking about how lost, confused, unsure, unclear, perplexed, disoriented. A lot of young Black people are because uh, uh, they've missed out on the transference of certain attitudes, beliefs, customs, dances, jokes, information, moods, legends, opinions, practices, soft skills, superstitions, techniques, the stuff my grandmama taught all cultures have their stuff, their rituals, their courtesies, And I'm saying we've come to a point where uh, I think a lot of the murdering and the killing and the the disregard for life itself that we see in some communities is rooted deeply in the loss of stuff. People are untethered to moral philosophical concrete. Yes.
0: On this conversation today, you're hearing excerpts from a program during Black History Month at Emory & Henry. Here is more from the presentation of Dr. William Turner, author of Harlan Renaissance, Stories of Black Lives in Appalachia. So in
1: central Appalachia, where we grew up, uh, the black phrase to white phrase transposed. People were black and white. That was their stuff. They were hardworking people. They put their families first. They were high uh, in their religious orientation. Schooling was very important. Excellence was stressed. How many times did my teachers tell me when I was coming through, sitting there, and they come and put your hand on your shoulder and say, Billy, uh, you know you, you represent the race, don't you, son? You got to give credit to your race. You know if you don't excel, they're going to think ain't none of us going to excel. I
0: said, I don't know
1: Jackie Robinson. <laughs> But that is what those old country teachers pushed on us a long time ago, that you gotta be the best. Uh, And and you carry that burden proudly sometimes. Uh, You had to be engaged with your community. You were patriotic. I named for a man who was a Buffalo soldier who died in World War II, my daddy's brother. He was in, he wanted to be in a Tuskegee Airman, but he was 66 and he couldn't fit into a cockpit. So he became an, uh, Uh, aviator. uh, He did the navigation from the back end of the plane and they were shot down over Italy two years before I was born. The greatest thing, the greatest value in all of what we do as Appalachian people is that you better have a sense of humor because nobody's going to take you too seriously anyway in Harlan County if you're too full of yourself. So that sense of humility, that sense of neighborness, I'm no better than anybody. That was what the stuff was. Critical race theory, get it from that lady right there. Long before critical race theory, old black women who did nothing but read the Bible, <laughs> like my grandmother, they would tell you, boy, act like you got some common sense. You mean to tell me you never heard what I'm telling you before? You mean to tell me your dad didn't teach you that song? You mean to tell me, and don't you ever get above your race? Constantly reinforced. And that that can get to you after a while. So now that we talk about all these social influencers that are influencing these young people, these were the greatest social influencers of my day, and I wish they were back. 1968, I was 22 years old. Uh, that was the height of the transformative period of American history. When Martin Luther King got shot, and John Kennedy got shot, and Mayor Evers got shot, and it was like a very Heck, I even saw the day, 50 years later, in the last week, nine nine historically black colleges have had bomb threats. Dr. Francis Wellsling at Howard University a few years ago talked about this. What happens now that we see that many young African-Americans are the only people on the entire planet who've been taught to sing and praise their own humiliation and disgrace in the music? The music has become the beat of, I'm a gangster. So Carter G. Woodson even said many years ago, if you can train up people to degrade and demean themselves, you can walk away and they'll do it themselves. You don't need the Ku Klux Klan anymore. So who makes this new stuff up? Go well, to TikTok. This is almost the reverse of starting off by talking about the banning of mouths and censoring books. But some of the things that are affecting my grandboys who are 13 and 14, on their phones man we used to have to slip down to the pool room and guys would have little cards with women on oh. well now my 13 year old can flip his phone and see anything that just would make me bless at 75 years ago but you have to wonder what does that do to them culturally when they go through all of that a lot of the stuff that black people live by their codes of behavior that are into the Oh uh, as a process of accommodation, assimilation, acclimation, adjustment, adaptation, and what we call integration, uh, we gave up a lot. We gave up an awful lot. And one of the things that uh, we now talk about is the achievement gaps in the school systems from Marion, Virginia, to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Everybody's got an achievement gap problem. Well, one of the reasons why the have an achievement gap problem is that they're finding, at long last, we don't have any teachers that look like these inner-city kids. What do we do? Somehow uh, we lost these stuff, and now we're trying to explain certain educational disparities. It's so simple to me. Just look, this nation: Dutch Americans, Cherokee, Japanese, Italian. Jewish in America, Mexican Americans. Look at the most common country of birth origin Uh, in Texas. The largest, the origin of the largest group of people is from India. The famous Texas Medical Center has more doctors who were born in Mumbai, in India. It's probably that way in the hospitals around here. Because you can just see America is becoming increasingly a country of color. Then they talk about that at Charlottesville. They're going to replace us. Uh, Ever wonder if these immigrant groups remain, maintain elements of their native culture? Uh, I drive by every day uh, a place in metropolitan Houston, and it's called Asian City. Houston is the most multicultural, diverse, ethnic, City in the world, Houston, Texas. Uh, Houston, Texas has more Nigerians than certain parts of Nigeria. <laughs> and they are highly educated people. Uh, and so you just see, you guys are going to live in a totally different world than I am living in. And so we have to understand that history is not going to go backwards. No matter what people are telling you nowadays, history moves in a in a forward direction. So I'm finished now. I try to say that traditions, customs, values, our folkways, our sayings, these beliefs, they're all important. They're handed down to us from generation to generation and they become vital elements of who we are. And culture is more important to us in a sense than even the physical spaces in which we live. And we draw on it, it's handed down to us, but if we don't live in that same culture, we did as children. The world of this century is changing far too fast, and we have to have this culture that is handed out to us in these new times. That's my friend named Law Jones, who was the founder of the Appalachian Center for Leah Jones. So I'm trying to say that not all Black people have lost this stuff, but there is a lot of confusion that we see in the media, these movie star types, these star athletes, uh, these very, very visible people and I don't think they have their feet moored in, in the culture uh, that was passed on from their grandparents, which is why I think sometimes I scratch my head and say, man, what can the world we live in? I think that's the last slide, I think there's another one. Thank you, uh, Emory and Henry. Uh, and uh, I believe firmly in that uh, phrase, verse from, I think it's the 27th chapter in the book of Acts. And it said, "God has made of one blood all nations of people." today, we also had about two hundred and forty-three folks who joined us via Zoom. Yeah, I saw that. That's remarkable. Thank so, you so, so, much. so we may also uh, take a question or two from the chat my pleasure. as well. That's true. Okay. Okay. his question says essentially, when my mentor John Stevenson was encouraging me. When I went to graduate school, to focus my research on blacks in Appalachia. Fact uh, of the matter is, at the time, uh, I was relatively unimpressed with being from Appalachia because by that time, I I looked over the mountain and I had been to Lexington, uh, I had been to Louisville, I had been to Knoxville and Kingsport, and it was like, gee man, look at the way they live over on this side of the mountain. And they were much more cosmopolitan. My dad went to the third grade. My mama married my dad when she was 15 in 1938. Uh, And I was beginning to see houses that looked a lot better than ours, you know? And and people had better cars and they had better things. And you know how it is when you're a country boy and you go to New York City and you look back to where you come from, you almost want to deny its existence and say, I'm not from there. I want to identify the group of people here. And then some, at some point, by the time I was in my mid-20s, I realized that what my father did, those coal miners, those solid earth people, had helped to build the whole country because mining coal was at the basis of the industrial revolution. And they were hardworking. And it, it never did I disparage them, but there was a moment when I thought, man, what would it have been like if I've been married in there? if my father and mother had had our college degrees, what if my father and mother had been able to uh, take us to Myrtle Beach? Uh, you know, things that we would denied for various reasons. And so you get to a place that you realize that there are people that have a better car, that have a better house. Grandma always said, but they're not better than you. And so I also began to realize that Appalachian people, uh, yeah. And so I became much more confident about, you know, those roots, even though much of the Harlan County, uh, the the cold counties of Southwest Virginia, uh, you know, it lasted for just over 125 years, even the cold camps that made Abingdon, Virginia. They used to say, The trains went up into West Virginia and got cold. They brought it back to Atherton and got money.
0: With that last comment, you can see how appropriate Dr. Turner's presentation was for this area. Our gratitude to Dr. John Holloway, Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Emory & Henry, and Emily Bishop on his staff for helping us with the material for this program today. You'll hear Dr. Holloway thank Dr. Turner for the presentation. And we thank you for joining us today on this conversation. I'm Teresa Keller. You can hear this program Wednesdays at 6 and Sundays at 2 here on 90.7. For more information and older programs, you can go to the archives at wehcfm.com. Comments are always welcome at wehc@ehc.edu. at ehc.edu. Thank you for listening to your community radio station.